preparation for word and sacrament this morning, I invite you to stand and join me uh, in reciting what we believe, confessing what we believe in the Nicene Creed. So let's please stand and confess together what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit into the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. So, you know, if you've lived in this world any amount of time at all, you know what it is to mourn a loss. Perhaps you've grieved the death of a parent, of a child, of a spouse, a friend. Uh, others of you have grieved over maybe the loss of a job, a personal rejection, or a, a loss of health. Could, it could be even death over the sorrow of a pet. But when in every way it comes, whatever form it may take, whether it's deeply personal or communally felt, it always represents a turning point, a, a line of demarcation, a moment in time where you realize that from that point on, uh, life will never ever be the same again. And the process of grief and mourning is how we confront those changes. One noted grief counselor and therapist uh, described it like this. He says, grief is what you think and feel on the inside, and mourning is when you express that grief outside of yourself. He said, mourning is grief inside out and is ultimately how you move past it being grief, toward hope and healing. And that idea is kind of the subject of our text as we continue uh, our look at the Beatitudes from our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned to you last week, I plan on covering each of the eight Beatitudes separately and individually. Uh, so our text for today is the same, with the exception that I'm only going to read up through the one that we're covering today. So we're going to be in this section for a little while, but I'm, I'm not going to read the whole, reread the whole thing to you in its entirety every week. Uh, so I invite you to open your Bibles, uh, and we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5, the first four verses, and listen for the voice of the Spirit. So in seeing the crowd, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for the faithful recounting of uh, this most wonderful sermon that our Lord gave, this Sermon on the Mount, Lord, these eight Beatitudes uh, that are a guide to the kingdom, a guide to life. Uh, Write your word upon our hearts today, Father, as we open this new one up uh, and teach us all that you have for us from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know, as I said in the, in the opening there real quickly, when we think of mourning, we usually associate it with death, right? Either the death of someone or, or something that we've loved. And, and for me, uh, the last four years have been almost nonstop with that. First, my dad, and then my mom, um, my dear mentor, Dr. Buddy. And even just, just this past Monday, we lost my Aunt Kathy. Uh, but through it all, God has been a source of comfort and peace. In fact, that's one of the sweetest promises of Scripture that according to Psalm 147, that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Because we have a God who genuinely understands our grief and our sorrow. In fact, in predicting his life and ministry, the prophet Isaiah wrote that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. And Jesus is called this man of sorrows because of how much he suffered, how much he'd have to endure. Right, he suffered leaving the glories of heaven uh, and entering into the human race as a man. He suffered all the indignities and losses that humanity suffers. Like, for instance, his, uh, his stepfather Joseph disappears really quickly from the picture, right? Uh, like, likely due to death. He suffered the rejection of his brothers and sisters who treated him like he was crazy. He suffered the betrayal of some of his closest followers. And finally, he suffered the wrath of God as the sin bearer on the cross. And so Isaiah 53.3 rightly says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Right? All of them. From the most superficial disappointments up to those heart-wrenching deaths of those folks very closest to us. Jesus has experienced all of those. And he offers to be with us through it and praise God for that. And yet... That's not really the primary meaning here in today's beatitude. And the way we know that is from the context of the previous chapter. That when our Lord began his itinerant preaching ministry, we're told in the previous chapter, that from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, that was his theme of all of his sermons. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of the other things that he said and that he taught both in public and in private with his disciples from that moment on, either point us back directly to that need for repentance or illustrate kind of around that central theme. And so when Christ uttered the words, blessed are, or as we said last week, happier are those who mourn, he meant it not merely as a comfort for our individual personal earthly losses, but as a balm for the greater anguish that has engulfed the entire world. As we're awaiting for the day, that the Bible says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Which, And I mentioned this in Sunday school, is incidentally, why we always feel such surprise uh, over something like a natural disaster or a shock over a national tragedy or fear over a, a poor diagnosis from a doctor or such gut 
wrenching anguish over the loss of a loved one, uh, even if it was predictable, uh, it's because, church, the world's not supposed to be like that. The world is not supposed to work that way. And so don't feel guilty or embarrassed when you find yourself unprepared to face those kinds of things because there is no way to prepare for them. Right? Death and disaster are not part of God's original plan for the cosmos. Those things are completely out of step with the life that God had planned for this world. In fact, it's why the Apostle Paul calls death, as the Scripture says, an enemy to be destroyed. Death is the enemy of everything good, right? Of everything true and beautiful about life. And it's a constant reminder that we live in a world that's terribly broken. All of it, every piece of it, every bit of it. From the annoying little moths that eat up our clothes to the, the rust that destroys our cars and corrodes our homes to, to the frailty that inevitably besets our human bodies. All of it comes from sin. And so more than just mourning the personal losses we face uh, in the Beatitudes this morning, our Lord Jesus is inviting us to recognize their ultimate source so that we can find true comfort in the redemption that he brings. Uh, otherwise, our handling of losses becomes, uh, and both large and small losses, become so myopic that we fail to see the need for a Savior in them. And honestly, leaves us nothing more than a great big unanswered question of why. Did you ever ask yourself that, like, why did that have to happen? Uh, or better yet, why did that have to happen to me? And the ultimate answer to that question, as I said, is our fractured relationship with God and the sin it leads to, whether they're sins directly committed by us or just inherent in this world system. Uh, but either way, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And at its core, sin is rebellion against God and against Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so when we sin and become separated from God, we become separated from life itself, and so we grieve. Some people grieve themselves further into isolation, both from, from God and from others until they're past the point of repentance. But for some folks, God uses those same impulses to mourn and uses them to point us back to the Messiah and to deal with the spiritual realities in our lives so that we'll mourn over sin, both in our life and in the lives of other people. It's why James 4.9 says, be miserable, mourn and weep because of your sins. And that it's that kind of mourning that leads to our ultimate happiness. Now, now admittedly, that might sound a little odd, right? Because we've been taught by the world that if you want to be happy, that we shouldn't dwell on our sins. We should, we should justify them or blame them on somebody else. Try and forget about them, right? Or, or say things like, hey, don't worry, be happy. Put, just put it behind you. Uh, sweep it under the rug. Learn to forgive yourself. And for heaven's sakes, never ever let the church say anything to anyone that would damage their self-esteem. Because it's all, you know, that the you're okay and, and I'm okay and God doesn't really mind either way. Right? But brothers and sisters, if that were true, let me ask you, what in the world would we need Jesus for? Right? I mean, seriously, what would be the point of the cross if God simply accepts everyone just the way they are? And, and there is a, there's a little kernel of truth to that, just enough to make it a really good lie. Because the real truth is that God does take you the way you are, but brothers and sisters, he loves you way too much to leave you that way. Okay, And, and the genesis of that change that he desires to make in us begins with sorrow over our sins. 
And there's lots of examples in Scripture. There's several, but one of my favorites is from Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember that story. When Isaiah is headed into worship and he goes to the temple, he opens the doors of the temple building and finds himself not in the earthly sanctuary he expected, but in the very throne room of heaven. So if you still have your Bibles open, Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So you see, as as soon as Isaiah saw this vision of the thrice holy God, he immediately was convicted with a strong sense of his own sin. And guys, this is such an important lesson of his from the text, that a genuine encounter with God always, always convicts a person with sin. And I would actually go so far to say that if, if you come and tell me you've had something that you thought was an encounter with God, and you did not have a deep awareness of your sin because of it, you probably weren't meeting with God. Because every time those kind of encounters happen in the Bible, that's what happens, right? The book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. Even those people who knew him the best, like men like Moses and Abraham in the Old Testament, uh, Peter and John in the New Testament fell as dead in his presence when they met him, right? The Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 5 verse 8 says, when Simon Peter saw Jesus' power, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So if you say that you've had an encounter with God and have not been convicted of your sins, I have to tell you, I think you're mistaken. You may have had a good feeling. You might have had a vivid imagination, but if you had truly had an encounter with God, you will be convicted of your sins. And brothers and sisters, because of his great mercy, though, the consuming fire of Christ, like that burning coal from the altar of God, doesn't destroy us. It purifies us. And perhaps one of the greatest examples of that comes from the life of King David and the encounter that he had that prompted him to write Psalm 51. If you still have your Bibles open, as I said, in front of you, and you look uh, at the heading of Psalm 51, you'll see it was written after the prophet Nathan confronted David with his sin. It actually says uh, in the superscription there, it says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So so just just in case, if, if you don't know the the full context of the story, long story short, uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant, and then David has her husband killed to cover up the tracks of his sin. But since no sin is hidden from God, Nathan confronts David, and in his repentance, David penned Psalm 51, and this is what he writes, and follow along with me if you have it open. He, He writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know 
my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And notice here how David doesn't fall into that self-justifying trap of shifting the blame, right? He doesn't say, like, the devil made me do it, right? He didn't say I was just having a bad day. He, he doesn't blame Bathsheba for bathing on her rooftop or his general for obeying an order he knew was a bad one. No, he faces the music. He, he says it was, was my iniquity. It was my sin. It was my transgression. He, he owns his own choices. In fact, if you, were, if you were listening along the way, he vindicates God by saying, you're right when you pass judgment and you're blameless when you judge. Because brothers and sisters, when we sin, our greatest need is not to cover it up or to rationalize it or to feel better or even just to get it off our chest. What we need is forgiveness. And you don't get there without being sorry for your sins. And not just sorry that you got caught, but that you offended the majesty of God and so you can finally come to the place where you see that even on our best days, as the Bible says, we are all like an unclean thing, that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And, and now you might be thinking by now, when do we get to the blessed part of blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted? Like, wh where's the comfort, Pastor? Well, here it is. If Matthew 5, 4 is true, and it is, if Jesus really meets our repentance with comfort instead of condemnation, then that means you don't have to be afraid to go to him. It means you don't need to fear being exposed in his presence. It means you don't have to hide from your past anymore and pretend like God didn't see it. One commentator put it like this. He said, no longer do you need to fear studying your heart and plumbing the depths of your disease. And he continues, and I love this part. He says, if exploring Sin brings you to the deep end of the pool. Exploring mercy will take you to the Marianas Trench. And awaiting you at the bottom of that dive is not a black hole, but a solid rock. And brothers and sisters, that rock is Jesus. Because in the final analysis, the Sermon on the Mount cannot be separated from the sermon giver. And giving is exactly what he came to do. To give us new life. To give us forgiveness of sin and a path back to the loving heart of the Father with whom Jesus constantly intercedes on our behalf, as Hebrews 4 tells us. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Because, you know, Jesus prayed a lot of prayers during his earthly incarnation, but never once did he pray a prayer of confession. He didn't need to, but he mourned over sin. He mourned over our sin and the sins of the world. And brothers and sisters, that's what took him to the cross for us, for you. If you remember on the final week of his life, his earthly life leading to his crucifixion, <clears throat> as he traveled to Jerusalem, Luke 19 tells us that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And you know, the majority of the folks on that day missed that. They missed those words that he spoke. They missed that chance, but don't let you be one of those. Don't miss it. So for you whom the Holy Spirit is giving ears to hear today and eyes to see, look to Jesus, who the Bible says is the author and finisher of our faith, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and your hearts give up. So don't give up today. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself today grieving over your past, if you feel yourself mourning over your sins, don't give up. That's a good thing. But don't get stuck there. Take it to Jesus and leave it with him. Because ultimately our comfort is anchored in the reality that Jesus didn't just mourn over our sins with us. He conquers them. And he invites us into this radical vision, this, this upside-down kingdom where grief is good and comfort awaits and the kingdom is ours and he dies in our place so that we can enter it and to marvel at his glorious grace. And one of the most beautiful ways he's made for us to do that is in this table, at his joyful feast of the people of God. And so brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts as we pray and be comforted. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.